spoiler alert, that's where I'm going. But we're not there yet, and I'm going to have to lead you through Nehemiah 6. And again, the main point that I want to drive home today is that the sheer practical nature of recognizing the glory of God in our lives today. Specifically, when it comes to one of the most important things that we as a people have to deal with, namely, words. One of the major differences between humans and all of the other animals that the Lord created is the fact that we have a very high level of language. We can say amazing things to one another. We can build each other up with our words. We can tear each other down with our words. As we're going to see today, we can use words to distract one another, to lead people to despair, to deceive one another. We can also use words to extol the glory of God. We can use words to remind people of the trust that we are to have in God. We can use words to heal. And all of this we can see happening. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase. Uh, it was pretty popular when I was a kid. I'm guessing in this modern age of, you know, trigger warnings and things, it's not quite as popular as it used to be. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Do you believe that? Good, good, because it's wrong. But on the other, that, that's a standard thing that people will say. Unfortunately, that tends to mean that we become a little bit cynical, a little bit hard. We look at other people's problems or we look at the things that people say to us and we imagine that your words don't matter to me, so I'm not going to really listen to what you're saying. And that's bad. Christians are not called to be cynical, hard people. That's not, that's not what, and unfortunately, I have to say, that's something that I find myself falling into fairly easily, cynicism and being hard, because people say lots of really, really silly things about, you know, the Lord I believe in. <laughs> it's really easy for me to get hard and cynical about that, and I'm not called to that. I'm called to love people who say these kinds of things. But on the other end, there's people who will say, well, you know, words, uh, words are really, really important, you know. Uh, you can't use certain words in, in in company because it's going to cause them to be absolutely destroyed psychologically. I'm going to need 10 years of therapy because of the fact that somebody used the word Nufi in my presence. Now, I, I didn't know this, but Nufi apparently is a pejorative word. I say it about myself all the time. I, I am a Nufi, so I'm, I'm quite proud of it. But people tell me that's a pejorative word. And you know, pejorative words are supposed to be things that we never use in public because they cause people pain. And so, and, and Christians can do this all the time too. We can start wondering if, you know, the people around us should stop saying negative things that we disagree with about Christianity because, you know, I have a right to be respected. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, you shouldn't say bad things about Jesus but I don't think that I need to be standing on my high horse and defending my own, uh, my own right to be not offended. There's got to be somewhere in between this, between the idea of being cold and cynical 
and not really caring about what people say and being, well, so caring about what other people say that we don't actually live the lives we're called to live. And we just keep editing our own words and making other people edit their words so that before long, we're not really saying anything to anybody because that denies the power of words too. Now, don't get me wrong. Words are very important. They are. The Bible tells us this in multiple places. Words can be swords or they can heal. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Both are important. Both are powers that words have. Words can do, but words can do great, great damage. Look at James chapter three, verses four to six. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set in fire itself by hell. Tell us how you really feel, James. The tongue is extremely important. The words we say, the words we respond to other people saying stuff to us with are very important. Yet as I said, we need to be loving people. God calls us to love those around us. He calls us to love him above all else. And we are called to do that partially through our words. What does this have to do with Nehemiah 6? I thought Nehemiah was building a wall. He is. But this is what we're going to see today. You see, Nehemiah chapter 6 is an interesting little chapter in the fact that Nehemiah 6 doesn't have a lot of action. Now, just to remind you for uh, people who are joining us halfway through this series, I've already gone through 1 to 5. Nehemiah is pretty much a journal. This is the journal of the governor of Judea, uh, or just at the end of the time of the Babylonian captivity. The people of Israel are coming back. He saw the needs of the, of the city of Jerusalem, that it needed a wall, kind of the same way that modern cities need police forces. It needed a wall. And that without the wall, the people were scattered and separated and open to being attacked and destroyed. And so he felt a call of God to leave his position at the center of the Assyrian Empire, where he was the cupbearer who had the ear of the king of the entire empire, and go out into this little tiny place out in the edge of the empire, right next to the water, and build a wall around a city. Kind of a big, it's a big fall. He's moving from being at the center of the empire to the ex uh, outer extremity of the empire, and God called him there. And the book of Nehemiah is about how God worked through him, a government official, not a religious leader, to bring about his own will, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
And in the first five chapters, we saw that it's not all, it's not all amazing. It's not all roses and, and parades for him. There are people who oppose him. And at one point, we saw that some people actually got violent about it. It got so bad that during one part of the period when they're building the wall, some of these guys are carrying swords in one hand and their hammers and trowels in the other so they can do their work. And if somebody comes to try to kill them, they can fight. It's that bad. But now by Nehemiah 6, we're getting a little further on. And we're going to be reading what Nehemiah, Nehemiah's journal, what Nehemiah thinks about what he's, what he's praying about, what's going on in his head to deal with, uh, as he deals with some issues that happen around him. And we're going to see that Nehemiah 6 is about how his work is opposed by words through the words of others. Words that distract, words that bring despair, words that deceive. And Nehemiah has to be wise in how he responds to these words because he has to be godly as he's responding to these, as we have to be godly as we respond to the words around us, as we have to be godly when we're talking to one another. This is what he's facing. And so Nehemiah chapter 6, starting to read at the first verse. Now, when Senballat and Tobiah and Gershom the Arab, Arab Sembalat and Tobiah we saw before, Gershom the Arab is a new dude. And the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hepcaphrim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And then they sent four times this way, and I answered in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, and that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become the king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they are all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went down into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahadabel, just read it quickly and with confidence, nobody will know that you don't know how to pronounce that, <laughs> who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the, could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sabalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Nehemiah is not in a great place at this point in the book of Nehemiah. He's facing opposition from people all around him. He's facing difficulties from people who have been placed around him. He knows that they're enemies, but because of the way that things are set up, you can see that some of these people are close to him. I mean, Tobiah here, when you look through the the names here, I'm not going to go too deep into it. But these are people who worked with Nehemiah to help build the wall, were friends of Tobiah. There's, there's reasons that Tobiah has, has the sway he does here in Jerusalem at the time. Yet he's there, he, Tobiah actually wants to stop the building of the wall. And they're desperate because the wall is almost built. And as we see by the end of the chapter, God has done it so that the wall is built. Yet in order to stop it, in order to cause this to not happen, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of, to- of Nehemiah, well, they try to use words to do horrible things. First of all, you can see in verses 1 to 4, they try to distract Nehemiah. It says, just starting to verse, read verse 2, Sambalop and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hecab." Paphrium, I don't think I pronounced that the same way as any, t- any time I've said it, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. But they, they're asking to come and meet. They want Nehemiah to stop his work and come talk to us, have a conversation with us. And it sounds so nice, doesn't it? It sounds conciliatory. We're Canadians. We like talking. Yet, Nehemiah understands something about this. He understands that what they're trying to do is get him to stop building the wall as much as they possibly can. Keep him from doing the one thing that God had called him to do. The one thing that God had said from his time in in the center of the empire, come here and do this, had blessed him greatly to do it, had given him the timbers to do it, as you know, we said back during the time when Trump was around, Nehemiah did what Trump wanted to do. He got the wall of Jerusalem built and he made the Assyrians pay for it. <laughs> and it worked. But of course that causes people fear. 
It causes people who have power to be fearful. And so they want him to stop. And if they can't get him to stop normally, well, we'll use distraction. We'll move him away from what, ne what needs to be done to something that sounds good. Taking counsel with other people is not a bad thing. Talking to other people is not a bad thing, but get what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to leave off what was happening, and Nehemiah sees through it. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? Because that's what would happen. The work would stop. I mean, it se seemed good, but that's not what they wanted to do, and what Nehemiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is written here is that they wanted to harm him. They wanted to stop the building, and so he knew that that was what was going on, and so he, st he didn't do it. They were trying to distract him. We know how that feels, don't we? We all have callings in our lives, right? Nod, we do. All of us are called to do things. I don't know what you're called to do. Specifically, that's between you and God. Though I have to say, all of us have callings in our lives. And I can tell you, you have callings in your lives because you know Jesus. If you know Jesus, he's calling you to do stuff. In fact, I can tell you some of the things that, you know, I'm called to do. And I can tell you why I know I'm called to do them. I'm called to be a good, godly, single man. Do you know why I know that? Because I'm single. I'm a single man, and I'm called to be godly. I can tell you that some of you are called to be good, godly parents. Do you know how I know? You're parents, and you know God. It's not rocket science. Some of you are called to be good, godly students in your schools, calling people to know Jesus through your work. I know that because you're students, and you know Jesus. It's pretty simple, not rocket science. But it's so easy for us to become distracted from that, isn't it? I mean, the first thing people will say is, are you really sure you're called to that? Because maybe you're called to be doing something else. You know, you're a good, godly parent, but those kids are yelling way too much. Maybe you should take them off to an orphanage and you yourself go off and, you know, go to a convent or something. Be godly that way. I know that some of my, my parent friends will say, absolutely, definitely, God is so calling me to that. But that's actually a distraction. It sounds good in the moment, but it's not what you're called to do. That's what's happening with Nehemiah. How do you know you're really called to preach the word of God here on Sunday morning at Calvary Baptist Church? Well, you know, I can talk about all the ways that God has called me over time, but the big easiest one? because the elders asked me to preach here this Sunday morning, so I'm called to preach the word of God here. It's the same with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is right now in the position, he's building a wall, God has called him to build the wall, he has to get the wall built. But things will distract. Word of opposition comes in another way, though. This one's a little darker. This is despair. Look at verses 5 to 7. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, if you, you know, watch politics, an open letter is so that is not written to you. It's written to everybody who supports you to say why they shouldn't support you. 
to call, call them into doubt, to make them dislike you. If you, open a, if, you look in the, if you look in the newspaper and you see an open letter to, I don't know, uh, Franklin Graham, which is a recent one I saw in the newspaper, it's not written to Franklin Graham. It's written to us so that we'll stop listening to Franklin Graham. That's what open letters do. And this open letter is probably darker than most because it says this. It is, in, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. Geshem, by the way, is probably the king of, the, of Arabia at the time. Also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. Now get the situation. Nehemiah is the governor appointed by the king. He was sent there by the king. He is a friend of the king. And now Sambalat is calling into question whether he actually follows the king, whether he's loyal that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And, it, and Geshem also says it, it. This is so that people will say, oh, well, lots of people are seeing it. And according to these reports, you wish to be king and also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and take counsel with us. You can see the veiled threat, can't you? Come take counsel with us, or the next time you hear from us, we'll have an army at our back. Because you'll be rebelling. And of course, this, th there is no sense in which this is true. None of these statements are true. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem may have believed it, but it's, it's crazy. And Nehemiah says as much. This happens, doesn't it? You've heard, you've heard, you've seen this happen around you, words being used to cause other people to have fear, to be despairing, to wonder about what other people think. And it doesn't have to be true. It can be completely hearsay. It can be totally made up in your head. And yet, it's done. And you can see why it's being done. These guys want Nehemiah to stop. Nehemiah, you're cutting into our power. Nehemiah, we, we don't want you to be changing things so much in Jerusalem. It's been this way for 70 years, and it has been. You're, 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 you're doing these horrible things. I, I know you're terrible. And yet they're aiming to make Nehemiah despair, as it says, for they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. They're trying to get Nehemiah to stop and using words to do it. Crazy words, words that don't make any sense given the context, but they're still words. But it gets worse still. They fail there too, because Nehemiah responds properly. He understands how he should respond. And so he tells them, look, guys, you're making it up in your head. <laughs> I'm not doing that. There are no prophets going to pro proclaim me king in, the, in Israel. I'm sorry. But I'm still not dropping my work and coming to talk to you, to explain to you this, because you just want me to stop. And so that fails. And then it gets worse. He goes into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, was confined to his home. 
Keep that in mind. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. By, they are coming to kill you by night. Now this is a prophet talking to him. Now remember, Nehemiah is a government official. He is not a religious official. A prophet is supposed to be the religious leader. The person who's supposed to be calling him to follow God, to know God better. And this guy says to him, Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. Go hide in the temple. Now, some of us might not understand why that would be a problem. But let's remember that Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah is a government official and not a religious leader. He is not a priest. If you look back in Chronicles, let's see if I can find it here. Chronicles chapter 26. I'm going to start at verse 16. This is about a guy named Uzziah. Uzziah was a king in Israel, government official, not a priest. Uzziah says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Ahaziah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord your God. Then Uzziah was angry because they had stopped him. You see, Uzziah recognized something that Nehemiah probably recognized. If you go back to Numbers, one of the rules about the temple is that only priests go in. Only priests. And Nehemiah is not a priest. He is very powerful in Jerusalem. He has the ear of the king of Assyria. He is a very powerful man. But he ain't a priest. And so he shouldn't be walking into temples to try and be a priest. And yet this priest, this prophet of God is trying to call him to do that, even though he's bound to his house. You get that, right? The guy is supposed to be stuck in his house, but he's calling him, please come into the temple with me. This is pure, unadulterated deception. And the prophet knows it's deception, or ought to know. He's trying to, again, get Nehemiah to stop doing the work. And he's doing it using deception to try and stop Nehemiah from having good name among the people so that when the, his name is destroyed, people will stop listening to him. And if his people stop listening to him, they won't build the wall. Our power won't be destroyed. We'll get to stay in our, in our strong position because... We'll, we will be the people, the great accepted people. As Numbers 18.7 says, And you, your sons, with you shall guard the priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, talking to Aaron, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. God has said you get put to death for going into the temple, and the prophet is saying, come into the temple, for they're coming to kill you by night. 
And of course, Nehemiah doesn't do that. He answers well. What does Nehemiah say? Should a man such as I run away? That's pretty er that, that sounds pretty proud, doesn't it? Shall a man such as I run away? But it isn't. Think about it. He could run away. He's a governor. He could go back to go back to Babylon, as he actually will at one point. He can sit in the king's, uh, king's presence again. He can get the king's ear fairly easily. Heck, if you remember in Nehemiah chapter 2, the king cares about whether Nehemiah is happy or not. And the king did this so that, they would make, that it would make Nehemiah happy. Shall a man such as I run away? Sounds arrogant. And then he, he alludes to everything I just told you about. And should a man such as I go into the temple and live? Nehemiah recognizes the law of God. He recognizes the role he has. He recognizes also the role he doesn't have and sticks to his task. He's focused. You see, Nehemiah, first of all, is focused on God's call. We can see this in verses 3 and 8. When they're telling, him, when they're telling Nehemiah, come talk to us so you can stop the work, he sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. A great work. It's a great work that he's been called to. Now, we know it's a great work because we're sitting 3,000 3, years later reading about this guy in the Bible. We know that Nehemiah's work to save Jerusalem this way is a great work. He didn't, at least not in an objective sense. Think about it. This is 500 BC. Jerusalem is a destroyed city. The, uh, the peoples around them are just marching over it and doing all sorts of strange things. The center of all things societal and cultural is not Jerusalem. This is the outside outpost, the last place you want to go. This is where people get sent if they, <laughs> if they do terrible things, which is probably what Nehemiah's enemies think, that he wasn't actually sent there by the king for good reasons, but because the king didn't like him anymore. But it's a great work because God called him to it. Be careful, friends. This is important because he stays focused on this because he knows it's a great work. And what God is calling you to is a great work too, regardless of what it is. If God calls you to clean toilets, it is a great work. If you despise your calling, if you think your calling is unacceptable or minor or un unimportant, be careful there. It is a great work, not because of the work, but because of who you do it for. God has called you to it. Whatever God has called you to, he has called you to it. My brother keeps telling me about how he's a nurse. And his job apparently is to empty bedpans. That's the way he talks about his job. Well, if he empties bedpans to the glory of God, that is a great and noble work. Far greater than any noble work we could imagine in this world that, doesn't, that isn't done for the glory of God. 
any work done for God. The work that God has called you to is a glorious work. It is a good work, and you should not step away from it for any reason. The only reason is because God calls you somewhere else. But I can tell you something. So like if you're sinning, probably stop that work. But if God has called you to be somewhere, to do something, do it to the glory of God. Actually, I think there's a verse about that somewhere. I'll get back to that. I think there is a verse about that, though. But Nehemiah remains focused on God's call. Again, verse 8, he says, Then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you have said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Basically, you guys are crazy. I'm not doing it. But he knows what they're doing, for they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So in order to avoid that, he focuses on what God has called him to do and deals with the issue. So the first thing, Nehemiah is focused on God's call. Second, Nehemiah recognizes opposition. This is probably one of the biggest dangers that we as Christians sometimes have. We don't recognize when people are opposing what we're doing. And you can oppose for good reasons. For, for People can be you know, wanting to do good things, but they're actually just opposing you. But Nehemiah notices what when people are opposing him. Verse 1, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies. Notice he understands that Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, at least right now, are enemies. They want to stop the work. Therefore, they are enemies. That's opposition. Recognize that as, recognize opposition as opposition. He recognizes that. He doesn't go around thinking, well, you know, I've got Tobiah and Geshem and Sambalat against me. You know what? Maybe God didn't call me to do this. Maybe it was bad pizza that night. Maybe all of the things that God has done up to this point, the miraculous things God has done up to this point, have just been my head. Maybe when God worked in the heart of the king to send me, when he worked in the heart of the king to give letters, to bring stuff to me, when God worked to make sure that he would remain safe during this long trip from the center of the empire out to its outermost hinterland, when God started to work on the temple, or on the temple mountain, on the, on the wall around Jerusalem, Maybe, God, maybe this is all in my head and God isn't really calling me. And it's easy for us to believe that, isn't it? Whenever we face opposition, we usually do that. But we, we, we try to imagine ways of avoiding doing the job that God has called us to because it's hard. Friends, it's always hard to do what God calls you to do. Most of the world is in rebellion to him. In fact, your own heart is in rebellion to him. So, of course, it's going to be hard to obey him but it's opposition that you're facing. Recognize it as opposition. That's what Nehemiah does. Third, Nehemiah trusts in God. Now I use the word trusts. The, the Bible word for trust is faith. So if somebody crazy tells you that faith is some kind of magic thinking, it's not. It's just trusting God. That's all we mean. But Nehemiah trusts in God. He has faith. We can see this in the way that he talks. 
Again, most of these things are things that he didn't expect people to be reading. I'm guessing he's probably surprised in heaven that everybody's reading his Bible or his diary all the time. Kind of embarrassing. But in his diary, he says, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and will not be done. But now, look who he's talking to. Oh God, strengthen my hands. He's not doing this in his power. He's not doing this because he has the strength to do it himself. He knows that he needs God and he asks God, oh God, strengthen my hand. Verse 11. But I said, such a man run away and what man could, what man such as I could go into the temple, I will not go in. And I understood that God had not sent him. He trusts that God is moving in his life and will call him to the good things. And he trusts in God to not sidestep his, his position. I'm sure Nehemiah could have gotten a lot more power and a lot more quickly done if he simply made himself the religious authority as well as the political authority. But he didn't because he knew his role. That's a big problem in churches, by the way. So often we, we imagine that our roles are lesser or greater or whatever. Do you know what the difference is between an elder and everybody else? An elder has a different role. Do you know what a deacon does? Different role. Are they better or worse? Nope, different. The person who cleans the toilets is every bit as valuable to this church as the senior pastor, sorry, Steve. But it's the fact. He just has a different role because he's got a different education level and he's got a different calling. He's no more important than the rest of us. He just has a role to fill. You think I'm some amazing dude because I stand here? I've just got three, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Chris. Chris is a great guy. He just repeatedly tells me how, 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 how unacceptable I am sometimes. But anyway, because I've got three years of a uh, university education to understand about theology things, because some dude has hit me in the head and said, you're, you're a pastor now. I'm no better than anybody else. I just fill a different role. And there are roles here that I don't fill. I don't have every right in this church any more than Steve has every right in this church. And um, that's, that's a very good thing. I have no right to tell Jennifer what key a song should be played in because I have no idea. And it's a good thing that I don't try because it would sound horrible. That's her role. She's better at it. It's her field. I have no idea. Uh, well, I have a little bit of idea about technology and stuff, but compared to some of the technology stuff that the that like Dave and John are doing in the back, have no idea. That's their role. God's called them to that. And I need to trust in God that God has called the people into those roles that need to be in those roles. Because that's God's job, not mine. I need to be faithful to what I got faithful to what I got, focused on what I got, and trust God. That's the third thing. Nehemiah trusts in God. Fourth, Nehemiah desires to see God glorified. Now, this is not as clear in the text because, big spoiler for the entirety of the Bible, 
That's what the Bible's about. If you don't see the glory of God in the Bible, you're reading it wrong. You're probably ignoring huge chunks. And so it's not quite as necessarily clear here, but it, it, is, it is wheel woven into the back here. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Now, this is 2,500 years ago, at least 500 BC. They just built a completely destroyed wall in 52 days, not two months. In less than two months, the wall goes from a fox can't stand on it, I think that was the taunt that was happened at the beginning, to that's a wall with gates in it. Bandits aren't coming through that. 52 days. Actually, when I did my notes, it's like five exclamation points, and Steve knows how I hate exclamation points, but 52 days, goodness gracious. We're in the 21st century. If and when we decide to build a church, I'm going to tell you it's going to take more than 52 days. Nehemiah did this in 52 days, and he understands what that is. Notice what he says in his diary. This is his private thinking. And all our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they understood that Nehemiah is a great guy and an amazing ability with logistics to do this stuff. Right? That's not what the text says. The text says, For they perceived the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I can almost imagine him writing that in all caps. Our God did this. You see, Nehemiah desires to see God glorified. Everything that he's doing here is because God is the center. He is focused on God's call, not because of the fact that building walls is, a, is an inherently amazing thing to do, but because it's God's call on his life. He recognizes opposition as opposition, not because they're terrible people or great people or whatever. It's because they oppose the work of God and the work of God is important to him. He trusts in God because it's God we're talking about here. He fears God, so he fears no other man. And he desires to see God glorified. His in his own private thoughts, get this, he isn't even, he isn't even, been, he isn't even giving himself kudos in his, in his writings. He isn't imagining that, you know, you know, well, God, isn't it great? God has me around. No. He doesn't talk about himself that way. He recognizes his own role is just a role. He recognizes that God is all in all. God is amazing. God's call stands. God is what I need. I think we sang that, didn't we? So, how did he do it? How does he respond well to every instance here? Because let's face it, we're not going to know when somebody is distracting us or as opposed to lying to us or causing us to despair for no good reason. 
how does Nehemiah react well to all of these things? And we can see a little bit of what that is. So I'm going to have, for our application, I have a why and three hows. And I can't skip the why. I would... I know that I'm supposed to be very practical in sermons and, you know, make sure that everybody has practicality. But let's face it, if you don't have the why in this case, the hows are just reaffirming a delusion. The why is extremely important. There's a reason that this is the first word that children seem to keep asking you. Why? Because the why is important. There's a reason that there's an entire department at the university called philosophy, and you could actually just call it the why department. That's what they're about. Why is important. And so the why is God. And I just, specific things about God. And I just want to repeat these to you just to make sure that you understand it. First of all, understand that God is glorious. This is the God that Nehemiah follows, a glorious God. Uh, going back to the King, King Uzziah that I re- referenced earlier, who got proud of himself and then died in instant. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw this, king, this Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is glorious. I need an amen for that, please. God is glorious. And I don't need to actually just stick to this one verse. There are hundreds of verses. I'm just picking these at random pretty much. God is righteous. Everything he does is right. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Get that. In the midst of his mercy and his grace, he is righteous. We can talk about that. That's going to be a really good, good discussion about sanctification and justification sometime in the future. But for today, just recognize God is righteous. He is glorious. He is righteous. He is worthy. Friends, when we talk about God's call on your life, there is nothing more worthy, not because of the calling, but because it's God who calls. And God is worthy of everything. There is nothing that he's not worthy of. In Revelation 4.11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, he is worthy. I had a thing last night where I was reading a blog where I read one of the most tragic things I have ever read. A guy says... There is no such thing as inherent worth. Nobody is worthy. Nobody else is worthy. There is no such thing as something that's inherently worthy. You can never, which means you can never actually live your life for anything that matters. Friends, I'll tell you right now. If you live your life for God, it matters. And I don't care what you think of your life right now. I don't care 
whether or not you're in a good place. I don't care if other people are seeing it. I don't care if I see it in you. It's worthy. If you live your life for God, it's worthy because God is worthy. And friends, he is faithful. Nehemiah could trust that God would have his back because God's faithful and he has people's back. He doesn't need to beat down on Sambalat and Tobiah. He doesn't need to send an army against Geshem, the Arab. Why not? Because God's going to handle that. I mean, I, I know it's, it's an unacceptable thing to say, but vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So when bad things happen, leave it to God, goodness, because he's faithful. Look 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and the money verse, because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the son of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Do you have problems right now, you know, understanding that God is faithful, that, you know, whatever you're going through, he understands it? Even if I don't, even if the people around you don't, he will be faithful. Remember that. Believe that because it's true. And that's the why. The why is God. The why is always God. This is the truth. This is not my opinion. This is not something that I made up on a Saturday night so that I would have something to preach on Sunday morning. Though, to be honest, I was tempted to make something up. <laughs> this is the truth. This is what you see throughout Scripture, woven throughout it. God is worthy of everything. And Nehemiah understood that, and that's why he was able to handle everything that happened. That's why he was able to respect, react to distraction with focus. Why he deals with despair in trust. Why he deals with deception by glorifying God above all else because he knows who God is. Friends, do you know God? Because I'll, I'll tell you right now, if you do, if you know God, the one true God, great things will be done through you. Whether or not we see them as great, whether or not you see them as great, great things will be done through you because you know God. And he is far greater than anything else we could ever ask or imagine. And you can all, all talk about this as if this is a minor abstract thing, but I have to be clear, God loves you and has proven it. He's not an abstraction. This is not the deistic God uh, who wound up a clock somewhere back 500,000 billion years ago or whatever the new number is and then just pretended that the world was unimportant and left it alone. He has love, he loves you. He loves you. 
I can't get all of your eyes because some of you are sleeping. But he loves you. And he's proven it. And don't just trust me. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know you're ungodly? Do you know the problems that you have in your life, all the difficulties you've dealt with? He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know why there's a cross behind me? Because that's the proof. When you think, when you imagine for a moment that God does not love you, not my opinion, not something I've decided, it's right there, it's in your Bible. It's an objective fact. He loves you, he's proven it. That's the why, how. How do we react like Nehemiah in these situations? How do we avoid being the kinds of people that are like Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab? How do we re react to the people who are like Sambalat and Geshem and Geshem the Arab and Tobiah and do it well without becoming cynical and hard or just by being completely hurt all the time and dealing with our own victimhood all the time? Here are three basic recommendations. First of all, learn the truth about God. Learn the truth about God. Don't just trust people who stand up here with suits on. Learn the truth about God yourself. Most of you have Bibles. If you don't have Bibles, talk to me afterwards. I will give you one. Read it. I have to be careful here because some people can uh, understand reading the Bible in very silly ways. I don't mean read the Bible as if it's a nice little book that you can have and you know you can memorize it. it. Read it because it actually tells you stuff. I mean, nobody reads science textbooks imagining that the science textbook is, gives you some value for having read it. But they actually understand what it points to. Well, understand what the Bible points to. God, read your Bible like that. Like it points to God, because it does. When I say what the things about God, don't just trust me for having said these things. Read your Bible. I mean, I am a nice, handsome man. I totally get it. You want to trust me. But I'll fail you. He won't. Trust him. Read his word. Read the Bible and pray. Again, make sure you're understanding this for the why. Don't turn it into some kind of twisted legalistic duty. That's tragic. It's tragic to use your Bible that way. It's tragic to pray that way as if it's some kind of check mark for the day. It's like going to a banquet and imagining that you, you know, just by showing up at the banquet, you've, you, you're going to be filled instead of, you know, actually eating. Don't. Don't go to your banquet daily and then just, you know, pretend, pretend you're on a diet. Eat, dig deep, read, pray, spend time with God, learn the truth about God. Second of all, and this is going to be important, 
You notice that Nehemiah is writing the, all these things in his journal. Do you know what he's doing? He's reminding himself of the truth about God. He's writing it down because he doesn't always necessarily completely believe it. So he writes it down so that he can see it in his face. He can understand more clearly who God is. But we're stupid people. We forget stuff. At least I do. I don't know how often I forget God's glory. I don't know how often in the run of a day I forget the promises of God to be all sufficient in all things. And so I sin because I imagine that the sin is more valuable than God because I'm an idiot. So I need to be reminded. And so we need to remind ourselves about the truth about God. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Notice he's talking to his soul. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great uh, British preacher who's called the doctor. Why? Because he's a doctor. He says in, uh, in a sermon called uh, On Spiritual Depression, if you go to the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust on the internet, you can actually hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach this. But he says in that sermon, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the essence of wisdom in, the, in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you at the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man, talking about the writer of the Psalm 42.5, man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you don't, you have but little experience. That's, by the way, a quote from Lloyd-Jones. I'm not saying it. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to yourself, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Friends, remind yourselves of the truth of God Preach to yourself these things because you will forget them. Take some time and just tell you these things. If you find yourself following into the despair that people bring to you, if you find yourself listening to the doubts that people deal, hand to you by their words, remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of what he's said for you, what he's done for you, what he will do for you.
and preach to yourself. That was two. The third application. Tell others the truth about God. Don't be Sambalat, Tobiah, or Geshem. Be Nehemiah. Tell people what is true about God. Tell it to each other. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. I said I'd get back to it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another. Bear one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, did you think we just kind of do that whole worship thing before the sermon as kind of a tack on? You realize worship is very serious business, right? You you, do you know why we sang those things? Let's see if I can find my list of songs here. It's because we all need to be reminded that there is one true God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. His kingdom will come and is greater to be desired than anything else. We need him. And I am forgiven. Friends, we sing those things to remind each other of them. That's why we sing, why, why we are all called to sing during worship. It's not so that we can enjoy ourselves in singing. It's so that the people around you can hear you singing these truths to them. It's so that you can stand there and hear the congregation around you singing those truths to you. And so that when we walk out today, if it's been a good, so good worship time, and you've had a good, solid one, you'll be humming them, hopefully. Remembering the truths of God this week. And I mean, following the command that God gave us in Colossians 3, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Keep focused on everything that you're doing for the glory of God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And tell others of your hope, even if they may be opposed to you, especially when they are opposed to you. You know, we live in a city that has about, what, 220, 230,000 people. Do you know how many people will hear the gospel this morning? A little over 2,000. If you do, I'm not very good at math. I think that's a little less than 1%. Uh, math people can correct me if I'm wrong there. About 1% of people will hear the gospel this morning. All of what I'm telling you, you know, the fact that there is, you can have a life that's worthwhile, that everything you do can be worthwhile if done for Christ, they don't know that. That tragic thing that I read about somebody saying, uh, our lives really don't matter and, you know, we just all die in the end. That's what they really believe because they don't know. There are people out there who don't know God loves them. That God has proven his love to them. They don't know. 
kind of tragic that we're sitting here and we're talking about this and they don't know. We're called to be a community loving one another and there are people outside who don't know community at all. We're called to that. I apologize for going far too long. But in the end, God is glorious and we need to tell them of the truth. As it says in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now, to, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Friends, bring hope. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Friends, do good to your neighbors. Tell them of the hope that's within you. Know the truth. Remind yourself of the truth. Tell each other of the truth and tell others of the truth. May God add blessing to his word. Amen.